Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's the Autosport Podcast. We delve into the career of Graham Hill and ask if he's F1's most underrated champion. Graham Hill claimed his second world championship 50 years ago after a season during which he famously lifted Team Lotus after the death of Jim Clark early in the season. But despite his incredible Formula 1 success on top of victories in the Indianapolis 500 and the Mon 24 Hours, is Graham Hill an underrated racing legend? This is a question we'll attempt to answer today as we delve into his career. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me first is a man whose voice British motor racing fans will know very well, commentator extraordinaire Ian Titchmarsh. Of course, you have the advantage over the rest of us in that you've watched Graham Hill in action. So before we get into more detail, is there one particular performance or story about Graham Hill that stands out? Well, yes, I did see quite a few of Graham's races in the late 50s or mid to late 50s and and the early 60s. But I didn't see what I think is his greatest performance of those days, which is the British Grand Prix in 1960, because I I did have to go to school at times. And that race I only saw on TV. uh, And it was an extraordinary drive. And, And he had big, by that stage, I mean, yes, this is through the pages of Autosport and one or two other magazines that will remain nameless. Uh, the uh, efforts of Graham Hill to win a Grand Prix had become quite um, well covered. Uh, and it was a bit like 
uh, well, I suppose the last few weeks, um, is Lewis Hamilton going to win the World Championship this weekend or next weekend or whenever it is? Uh, and Graham came so close in the BRM, uh, which wasn't a very popular car, uh, but the but Graham Hill was a very, very popular driver. And, and in 1960, of course, Jim Clark was only just emerging, um, having his first couple of uh, Formula One races by the mid-season when the Grand Prix took place. And Graham Hill was becoming, second only to Sterling Moss, of course, who was the hero with a capital H, um, the, the next great hope of British motor racing. So, yeah, the 1960 British Grand Prix, when he drove from the back of the field after stalling at the start and drove through to um, take the lead, and then, of course, blotted his copybook by spinning at cops with a few laps to go. Well, that brings us to Kevin Turner, Autosport Magazine editor. Now, actually picking up on that, you recently composed your your list, your analysis of Graham Hill's greatest drives, in which that British Grand Prix is right up there, although not quite at the very top. We'll delve into that that list later, but this puts you in a good position, the fact that you've delved through, sift through all of his races and probably the, the most informed about the, the exact detail of some of those uh, of us today. Ian's made me very happy by mentioning that race. <laughs> That's good. Now, Gra- Graham himself picked out a couple of races as his best, uh, which we'll get to in a bit. And then that was that was sort of my next pick. So that, that did make the that did make the top three. So um, and actually even the spin was due to the, the they had a funny central rear brake um on the br that brn that year and it, it used to overheat all the time and um he took a chance in traffic with jack Babham right behind him and the brake overheating and and it, and it couldn't take it and he had the spin it was that brake that caused dan gurney to have a big crash at zandvoort a little bit earlier and, and it was a, a mad peter Burton idea that just couldn't understand i mean if you talk any driver subsequently if you talk to teddy brooks or something like that, about this this rear brake idea is it's a bacon slicer kind of effect as it looked like it was just a crazy idea yeah very strange because the car actually wasn't too bad uh, without that it might have been it certainly would have got some more de- I mean, he wasn't going to beat you know the t53 cooper probably or, or a lotus 18 normally but where the uh, lotus 18 held together well yes yeah we'll get on to lotus fragility later i expect oh, there's gonna be plenty of that plenty of the uh, lotus fragility well let, let's delve into into the topic now kevin Graham Hill is often associated with Jim Clark, as we've discussed, and there's always this dichotomy presented in that Jim Clark represents the the kind of natural driver and Graham Hill the workman. I have a little bit of a problem with that comparison, but is that a valid prism in any way to look at Graham Hill? Well, I'll start with Graham's own take on this, uh, which is found in his, in his book, um, where he said, Drivers such as Fangio, Moss, Clark and Stewart were natural drivers. I've never been described as this. The commentators said I had to work at it, and this is true. I had to work at it with BRM because, in my opinion, the car wasn't as good as the Lotus, so obviously it was up to me to do all I could. I don't mind being accused of working at it, which I think is you know, that's quite a pragmatic approach to take. But I think a guy who, who never stepped into a racing car until the age of 24 finished second in his first race, fourth in his first final, and was then competitive pretty much straight away. must have had what we would describe as some natural ability. But I don't like the phrase anyway. I think natural ability is a very lazy shorthand. Um, and most people, most great drivers are great drivers because of a lot of the work effort they put in. and comp- They may well have certain attributes, eyesight and hand-eye coordination, all the rest of it. But I think that particularly now, the uh, the 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 winners are the ones that put the work in. Graham definitely did that, but I think to think of of Clark as the natural and Hill as the worker is probably does them both a bit of a disservice. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And, and I mean, Graham Hill came on the scene before Jim Clark, uh, driving obviously for Lotus in the Lotus Fifteen, uh, and, and he was undoubtedly one of the quickest drivers around. And, and then if you look at again taking away from Formula One, looking at sports cars, when he drove the Porsche the rs60 and, and so on 
he was as quick as anybody. He, he was. I remember seeing him. It was a Taurus Trophy. I think was it the nineteen fifty nine Taurus Trophy. He qualified fourth in the Lotus Fifteen, surrounded by Ferraris and the, the Porsches and, and, and the Aston Martin DBR one. Uh, he, he was an extremely quick driver. The trouble is, it was inevitably he didn't. He, he looked to be working hard at it. He didn't have the laid back style of Sterling Moss or Jim Clark, and so people, because Clark's talent was so high, people didn't really give him the credit he deserved. But some of his drives were phenomenal. He does seem to be a driver who, I mean, looking through your greatest drives list, there's a lot of very very strong race drives. It, sometimes a different way of of winning maybe than Jim Clark, who often led from the front. That's not to put either of them down, but. Graham Hill maybe was able to string together those races, work on the car. He was a very, he was a good technical driver, and that perhaps yielded more of his results. But underpinning all that, you can't be a quick driver if you're not quick. You can't cheat, can you? If you're quick, you're quick. No, you're absolutely right. I think that, that, that Clark won from the front more often. Most of his wins come from leading from the start. Um, Graham Hill had to work his way through the pack at times. But uh, you know, I, I do feel, I mean, I've had a conversation with Damon about this. Uh, I, I do feel that, um, Graham was at the time unfairly judged and still is today because what was being written and said about him at the time is carried forward to people who didn't see him race. Well, you often get these things with all sorts of drivers in different areas where you get one that's kind of believed to be the natural talent and the other one that's almost cheated by, by working their way to it. I guess Prost and Senna sometimes people create that, that dichotomy. But it, but it is, it, it's, it's misleading, isn't it? Can I just go off on a tangent and talk about John Surtees? John Surtees through his own personality, I think, went off in the wrong direction. But as a driver, when he, he, he was more highly regarded in 1960 than Jim Clark. Uh, but his uh, history doesn't see him like that. History, history sees John Surtees as second or third behind, certainly, um, uh, Jim Clark and possibly also Graham Hill and or Dan Gurney. Well, he, he, he got the first shot at Lotus, didn't he? Chapman picked him first. Exactly. And then because of the Innis Island fallout, he left. So what would he have achieved if he'd been at Lotus? And then, of course, he would almost certainly have won the 1966 World Challenge, only not fallen out um, with the Ferrari manager of the time uh, and walked out when he, you know, everyone else, all, the, all the British teams were basically in a disarray and the Ferrari was probably quick enough in Surtees' hands to beat Jack Brabham. But I don't see that John Surtees would ever enjoy the same relationship with Colin Chapman that Jim Clark had, because I don't think his temperament, personality and so on would have allowed him to just let Colin Chapman do what Colin Chapman was so good at, which Jim Clark was happy to do, because he wasn't an engineer in the way that John Surtees felt Yeah, I think that's, that's absolutely fair, isn't it? Yeah. So, and you Surtees could imagine had... the friction there would have been. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> exactly. Surtees did fall out with quite a, a few people, didn't he? But also he had the uh, that much more experience of operating at a high level, because he'd already won multiple motorcycle world championships by then, so he was never going to be in that subservient role, like you say, in that, that I think Clark certainly was happy with to start with, I think towards the end of his career that started to change a bit and there was a little bit more tension but certainly during the early mid-60s I think yeah that, that, that was the dynamic yeah the one two fascinating little stories in, in David Tremaine's book about Jim Clark about the way the relationship with Colin Chapman was changing and that Colin Chapman at times treated Jim Clark quite badly showed him up in front of the of the mechanics for example because that was Colin Chapman not because Jim Clark deserved that sort of treatment but which I don't think he did, but Colin Chapman was a bit like that, and and, and eventually Colin uh, Jim Clark was getting a bit fed up with it. I guess the the kernel of truth in this is that probably most would regard Jim Clark as if you were to pick a driver over a single lap, probably did have a higher level consistently. Should we say Hill seemed to be able to dig deep at times in in races? Do you think there's that that's a that's a fair way to look at it that 
it's it's very limited just to look at a single snapshot hypothetical lap, but was Clark the, the quicker? Well, I think that Graham Hill, make, as Kevin's just read out, that, that point about um, the BRM needed more work. I, I think Graham Hill had to work hard to get the BRM to work at its best, uh, which wasn't as good as a Lotus 25 in the hands of Jim Clark. Um, but he, he was... I'm not conveying it well enough, but I, I, I just think that his status, there was Sterling Moss... There was then Graham Hill for about a year before Jim Clark comes on the scene. And then there's the two of them um, with John Surtees arriving on the scene in 1960. Jim Clark hadn't driven much Formula One in 1960 by the time John Surtees arrived. But Graham Hill was pro- prior. He was in Formula One in, in 1958, wasn't he? So he'd been around for a couple of years more before Jim Clark arrived. Well, I guess, Kevin, if you looked at, say, 67 at Lotus, looking at the, the, the Lotus series, Hill was... I mean, they had a lot of unreliability problems that year, but Hill was maybe closer to Clark than people think. But Clark had the edge on speed. So if you want to make that sort of like-for-like like comparison, shall we say? Yeah, I think um, I think that Graham was closer to Clark that season than is remembered because obviously Clark won four times and should have won the World Championship but had unreliability. But Hill's uh, reliability was even worse. He did have three poles. I think Jim had six and Graham had three. And Hill led six of the Grand Prix, I think. Um, and was, for example, would have won the Italian Grand Prix, you know, after Clark's puncture and the famous drive back through the field. But Graham was almost as quick and was absolutely miles ahead when the engine went bang. So I think they were closer than history remembers. But you would still give, you would say that that Clark, probably his biggest strength actually was being gentler on the machinery, which he had to be at Lotus, whereas Graham perhaps hadn't had to be quite like that at the BRMs, which tended to be probably I was probably better engineered if not as interesting in terms of design um, but you would definitely have to say that Clark is a, a bit ahead but it's not sort of head and shoulders above like some sometimes we we hear about. Well let's talk a little bit about the BRM years I think Ian you've already kind of alluded to this because Hill's indelibly linked with Team Lotus but he spent more time with BRM he was the only driver to win a world championship for the team so do you think should his achievement in leading British racing motors to such great success be a, a bigger part of the way he's perceived especially considering people forget that team wasn't exactly well regarded it, uh, in, in his early years it's interesting to read what tony brooks has to say in his book about that um because t- tony brooks reckoned that, that graham hill was very good at working with tony rudd to get the maximum out of the brm when i mean tony drove for brm in 1961 um and, and graham was already established there uh from 1959 1960 um and uh yeah, I think the the BRM was undoubtedly a very competitive car, but it wasn't a match. The combination of Graham Hill plus BRM wasn't a match for Jim Clark and Lotus. And had, had Jim Clark and Lotus not been there, had, had it been other drivers in, in the Lotus 25, Graham Hill, well, he won the World Championship anyway in 1962. He, he'd have been the driver to beat. He, he would have been the benchmark. It's probably also worth remembering how much of a shambles BRM had been for most of the previous decade. Um, you know, when, when you think that it was supposed to be around for basically the start of the World Championship with a glorious but fundamentally flawed V16, uh, and then they did have what well, we talked about. We talked about the, the brakes, the rear brakes, and then they did an H16 afterwards, uh, which I think was one of the contributing factors to Graham leaving as well. Um, but he he said he he made an interesting point actually about leave when he left BRM because he he said that I never imagined that I'd leave BRM but he started to see a drift in what they wanted to do they were trying to sort of spread their commercial arm a bit more and they were doing lots of non Formula One bits and bobs and he felt that they were losing focus um, 
which they'd had before. So I think that probably that relationship with Rudd and what Graham was able to bring to the party was maybe the final part of the jigsaw for them to win races and world championships. I remember a quote from that Graham, uh, a comment he made at the time when he, he left BRM to go to Lotus. Uh, and he said he felt he was at risk of becoming part of the furniture. Um, and whether that was just a way of, of um, being euphemistic about the real reasons behind which may be more what you're talking about uh, but yeah he had been at brm for a, for a long time as you say ed yeah there's also of course the 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 growing status of jackie stewart who but by then as well and i'm not sure whether but then again you're jumping ship to go and join jim clark at lotus so may, maybe that wasn't the reason yeah, I, I don't think i don't believe that the jackie stewart factor was a factor in, in graham hill's decision i think that he was made an almost made an offer he couldn't refuse because ford wanted to have two top drivers at lotus and graham hill was the obvious choice and ultimately, if you look at that decision, it, it was wise, wasn't it? Jackie Stewart also also left BRM. It wasn't many years after that that BRM was basically a glorified rent-a-drive team, wasn't it? At one stage, they were running huge numbers of cars for for various six. Uh, yeah six I think, well, well, for various uh, sundry individuals. Well, absolutely. I mean, you look at the results that they got in '66 and '67, and obviously uh, Hill and, and Stewart in '66, and then Stewart leading the way in '67. It's pretty appalling. Um, yeah, the H16 was. I mean, I think if you ask Jackie Stewart about the H16 now, he's got some pretty choice words about it. Um, so yeah, BRM was well into the process of losing its way by then, and yeah, I think Graham's timing was 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 pretty spot on. And they probably did need a driver like Hill, not just for his performances, but he was a he was a very good technical driver. You see all this stuff about the, the kind of extensive notes he kept. He was quite fastidious, it seems, in terms of bringing that kind of engineering driver, kind of almost a slightly more modern driver, uh, to that. So without a driver like that, could BRM ever have really sorted itself out to be a consistent force? Yeah, in this computer age, it's, it's impossible to conceive, I suppose, of what used to have to be done by drivers back then. But Graham Hill was, I mean, people like Dave Brody tell stories about how um, he once had a conversation with, with Graham Hill. This is going back into the 19... Uh, late 50s early 60s about how Graham said you've always got to keep notes of what the settings are on the car so that when you go back there and the mechanics are filled around with it you know that it was whatever it was last time it was at this given circuit uh, and and so making notes in a notebook was the way it had to be done because there were no sort of computer aids and actually you can see the benefit of that at certain circuits as well that he just really nailed so for I mean, Monaco is the famous one but Watkins Glen as well was always quick there so that he was a very ahead of the game if you like in terms of consistency of performance and that's got to have been especially when you'd because in those days teams sometimes ran the same car for two or three years so you could literally rock up the next year and you'd at least start your weekend with the way you finished it the year before so I'm sure that was yeah as you say ahead of the computer age quite a, a you know positive to have. It's interesting to talk about him as an engineering driver um, Ian because I was looking around on YouTube uh, the other day just to see what documentaries and things and, and kind of everything you watch about Graham Hill focuses far more on him off track than on track he was this huge character this superstar and I think I, I wonder whether that almost pollutes the perception of him that because he was seen as this guy who was having a really good time and a, and this larger than life character people almost can't correlate that with a more fastidious precise I'm talking the the kind of wider perception obviously those who really know in depth will see it but it, it does seem that this that you get these sort of artificial caricatures of people don't you i think i see what you're saying but um at the track he was very focused on the job in hand he wasn't somebody who most of the time uh was having a good time in the sense of uh, cracking jokes and uh joshing with other people that that wasn't 
Graham Hill at the track. But on TV, mate, he was a well-known personality, whether it was on Sports Night, whatever they used to call it, uh, Sports Personality of the Year. It was called something else, wasn't it, in those days. Um, I remember there was, uh, was it him and Jackie Stewart, I think, had quite a double act going on a Morecambe and Wise type of basis. Uh, Call My Bluff was a famous um, TV programme. You won't remember it. Um, but but he was a, regularly appeared on that. He was extremely good at telling stories with that inscrutable grin on his face. Um, it, it was a... Uh, one of the ways in which uh, Graham Hill became popular in a way that, with no disrespect to Jim Clark at all, because his reputation as a driver remains extremely high, but he wasn't a public figure in the way that Graham Hill was, who was totally different from people who came along later like um, like James Hunt. But um, there was Sterling Moss, and there was hardly anybody else was a household name. Mike Hawthorne had been, but not quite at the Sterling Moss level, and Graham Hill was the next one. And Kevin, it is, it is interesting, isn't it? Because I, there's so many TV appearances. I mean, if you look, if you have a look, just say on online, it's very hard to find that many Jim Clark interviews and comments. It's quite hard to kind of know his voice. Whereas Graham Hill, even though he's he's, he's been gone for for decades, I think you can almost connect to him more more easily. But it, but it is interesting that there was a, a television interview where he talked about having a bit of a reputation of being a hard taskmaster at the track, and he said, "Well, I demand high high standards from myself, and I expect the same from those around me." And he does seem to have that ability. To, to kind of drive a team and be a be a focal point, I think top drivers know when to switch it on and off. We've seen this quite a few times um, in the McLaren Sport BRDC award. Yeah, you drivers' reputations for larking about, but as soon as you're in the room and the laptops open, then it's they, they switch modes. And I, th- I get the impression that Graham is a bit like that. In fact, I think he even mentions in his autobiography that Bet Hill knew not to go near him within a certain amount of time before a race. So at that point, he was in racing driver focus mode in the way that you you would expect but he could perhaps he just had perhaps a bit more charisma or charm or whatever when he had to you know when he was out of that environment so he came across you know very well on on television some some people have that and some people don't i think um and funny enough he he says that when he first did a he did some notes for his first after dinner speech or one of his first speeches he became famous for it. in fact i think he won a won the the prize one year for the best after dinner speaker um, but he said the first one he had to do, um, he made some notes and um, they someone spilt something on it or he lost it in some way. So he had to ad lib and he said it went much better than if he'd just gone through the notes. So from then on, he never planned a speech. Um, and so he was much more natural. And, and, and I think that that was why he came across so well. But yeah, absolutely. When Once you're in, once you're in the racing mode, then you switch again, don't you? Yeah, and attracts uh, uh, he... I, mean, I wasn't covering Formula One back then, um, just as a spectator. But you got the impression that that he was. But I, can, I can remember seeing him from one in a Formula Two race at Alton Park, larking around with Jackie Stewart in the paddock. You know, they were, the, the, he wasn't focused the whole time from when he went through the gates to when he left at the end of the meeting um, on racing. He was capable of, of relaxing. But you saw a completely different side of Graham Hill on TV as a personality. Although he did, um, I think it was Graham, he was definitely one of the people that arranged, you remember the mini support race at the 1960 British Grand Prix? Uh, yes. Uh, where they where they agreed to start in reverse. <laughs> they all went off backwards before they actually then got on with it. So there's the little things like that. But then again, that's just, that that's for show. He knew he knew that that wasn't a serious, serious event, so you could lark about with it. So I think he, you know, he knew when to, yeah, it's a bit like the Lewis Hamilton thing, isn't it? People criticise him for going off and doing his, his own thing, but as long as he rocks up and nails it on pole and wins the race, who cares really? Um, 
Absolutely, I mean, he does the job he's he's um, there to do, and absolutely with Lewis Hamilton, what is he does outside motor racing? I mean, Sterling Moss didn't live in a monastery between race meetings. I mean, you know, he he, he had a good time. And it's interesting. I mean, you mentioned uh, Jackie Stewart there that the, the way Graham Hill responded to having that challenge. Obviously, Jackie Stewart's season at BRM was uh, was outstanding. His first this uh, when we first came into Formula One. In fact, we were discussing that earlier about. I think we talked about Lewis Hamilton's having the best rookie season, and maybe Stewart is the one that that challenges him in that in that regard. So that shows quite a good strength of character from Hill that he was able to deal with the challenge within within the team and create a good relationship with Stewart and it didn't become damaging or destructive or anything. Yeah, I think he still had the he was still the number one, wasn't he? So he still had the car. I think there was a there's a comment from Stewart who drove was it the Rand Grand Prix? He drove the Lotus when Clark in, was injured and he immediately went, okay, I can see he realised the way that Clark was rotating the car under braking, which they all do now, but Moss and Clark were probably the first two to be documented to be doing it. And Stuart realised that there was something going on. This has been his first, this is he's just coming up from F3. But he couldn't get BRM to go down that route while Graham was there. So whether that's because, uh, you know, w- would that have been an advantage? Maybe that would have, that's just different driving styles. Uh, and I've read before that Graham was more sort of had, had a more traditional line didn't wasn't using quite the extremities of the track which would have helped at Monaco because then you're less likely to ding the curb and, and break a wheel probably needed more of a margin around there than other tracks um, but yeah absolutely I think he he, he stacked up very well against against Stuart um, how well you how much better you think Stuart got after BRM I think is an interesting debate and perhaps a whole new podcast itself but um, um, he, he he's, he's up there isn't he he's, he did he didn't fold under that pressure um, and uh, I think even more amazing is how he picked up the Lotus team after after Clark's death in '68. I think as a personal triumph, that's probably up there with Lauda's comeback and Damon's picking the Williams team up after Senna was killed in, at Williams in '94. Yeah, there's always those eerie comparisons, there, aren't they, with uh, with Hill succeeding in, in the Spanish Grand Prix uh, after Senna's death? Um, actually, mentioning of of Monaco, see Monaco Grand Prix and Graham Hill are indelibly connected. Does does that kind of add to his greatness, the fact that he won Monaco so many times and he was so good there? Because you can, it's difficult, isn't it, when it's individual races? Because you could say, well, Hill won Monaco five times, whereas Jim Clark, I don't, I don't think Jim Clark won it at all, did he? But <laughs> but Jim Clark should have won it because there were there were times when he when he could have done. So you, is it just a quirk of uh, a quirk of fate that Hill was able to have so much success there, or is that something that really tells us, as Kev suggested, something about the way he drove and his qualities? Well, <clears throat> I suppose that the, the first Monaco Grand Prix I saw was 1963, uh, and Jim Clark led a large part of it and then had car problems, and so Graham Hill um, won the race. Uh, and subsequently, well, he won it five times. There was a, that incredible performance when uh, he was forced down the escape road at the chicane and got out of the car, push-started it, bump-started it, and carried on and won the race. And, and a, th- a feature of Graham Hill, I'm not saying that Clark and Surtees and others didn't have a high level of concentration, but Graham Hill seemed to get into a totally focused mode when he was racing, um, which around Monaco, I'm not saying you don't need it at other circuits as well, but it's just full-on all the time, all the way through, as it was in those days, 100 laps. So it's a, a long old race as well compared with today. Um, and he was able to concentrate without hitting anything. I mean, yes, he went down the escape road, but that was because of another car that put him offline, so it wasn't his fault. Um, and he was able to do this year after year after year. So to answer your question, what does that say about Graham Hill's status or greatness, um, I think it, it, it's a very important part of, of what he was as a driver. And we'll get back to this problem that um, he was up against Jim Clark. 
I, well, I, I agree. I was going to say that, that it's a quirk in history that Clark didn't win it, but I don't think it's a quirk that Hill did. I think that that his strengths as I mean, he actually talks about concentration quite a lot. He said, you know, you sit in a room for two and try and concentrate on one thing 100% for two minutes and think how hard that is, and then imagine doing that over to a you know, two, two and a half hour Grand Prix. So it was something that he very much. I think he was very conscious of and worked on, and 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 Monaco probably was. Well, the and the other one we're going to use up all the great races that I picked out, but the other one would be sixty-two German Grand Prix in the wet on another unbelievable circuit, completely different, but an incredible challenge again. And having Surtees, John Surtees, and Dan Gurney within a, a two or three seconds of him for an entire race, and not to make a mistake in those conditions is incredible. Those conditions being wet track, which could be changing from corner to corner around the fourteen. 14- Point one yeah, and I think they had some um, sort of landslides or something. Yeah, oh, yeah, it, it was, and he, was in the, he was in the secondary car because he'd had a camera fall ran off, over, uh, ran yeah. over a camera and had a big crash in the new car in practice. So, uh, I mean, that's a real digging deep focus on the job and everything else. Yeah, you've got, so, got the best drivers in the world behind you uh, and you've got a, a track where the conditions are changing all the time. And it's not just any old race track. It's the Nürburgring Nordschleife. I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary performance, absolutely extraordinary performance, that. Let's have a look at the, the Lotus years or the second Lotus years. Uh, Kevin, he returned in 67 to part Jim Clark, as we discussed. That was maybe something of a surprise, especially given the circumstance of his departure first time round. But it... Uh, <laughs> You know, we've talked about how he wasn't maybe quite as quick as Clark, but he did win the 68 championship. You know, he was a a key part of the team. And despite being a driver with quite strong views technically of what the car should be, which was maybe at odds with Chapman, the the Chapman-Hill relationship seemed to work okay for the most of the time, even if there were a few little flashpoints. Yeah, I don't think it was the same as the the Clark Chapman was one was well, it? Well, that's a great relationship but, for Chapman, isn't it? Yeah, it's like, yeah. I, I do what I want. It's probably a bit know. more even in a way. But also remember, after Clark was killed, Chapman really questioned whether he was going to carry on. I don't think he even went to the Spanish Grand Prix. He certainly wasn't there for the start of the weekend. I can't remember if he turned up on race day or not. Um, and the team were, you know, completely sort of beleaguered as you as you can imagine. And and you know, Graham again battling on, get on with it. It wasn't a particularly great performance. Uh, on track he needed quite a bit of luck to win that race but just the fact that he was there and kept plugging away and later on in the season he also kept going when various problems were happening with the cars one race where a couple of bolts came out you know the engine was basically the car's folding in half because obviously the dfe was stressed member of the car and it was only half attached and the handling must have been unbelievable um, and he, he kept scoring the points so although you'd say how oh, well Jim Clark would probably have won the 68 World Championship and Jackie Stewart could have done I don't think you can really begrudge Graham for actually sticking in there and dragging the team through what must have been a pretty horrendous season absolutely not I mean it, you know, he, he emerged from the, the the wreckage of Lotus after Jim Clark's death and the the impact that must have had on Colin Chapman was pretty considerable because it was a Lotus car now, nobody knew initially what the cause of Jim Clark's accident was uh, and uh, Peter Jowett remember the um, technical um, commissioner uh, was commissioned to produce a report on the and that took some time to emerge so um, Chapman didn't know whether it was his car or what it was that had uh, caused him to lose his, what he perceived as his best ever driver so Graham, the, the, the job that Graham Hill did then and you mentioned Damon as well what the job that Damon did after um, Ayrton Senna's accident um, was huge and it's the strength of their personality it is a remarkable parallel because um, uh, Graham, obviously he was in the same race at Hockenheim, you have two race, 
And he was he could now whether he was convinced of this or convinced himself that it definitely knew it wasn't driver error. He was pretty convinced because of where it was. He said, "I'm sure there was nothing wrong with the car." Sort of implying that there must have been some sort of tire issue, and to just get you know get on with it and get back in the car is not dissimilar to Damon going, "Yeah, I'm going to get back in the car at Imola, um, even though we don't quite know what's caused the accident." It's it's quite it is quite a remarkable trait. I think that you could forgive either of them for just perhaps not turning up for that particular race, at least for a while. Well, Imola, I suppose, Damon, in a sense, at that stage, nobody knew the enormity of what had happened for certain as the race was restarted at San Marino Grand Prix. Um, it was more what happened next for the next race meeting that, that, um, uh, that Damon's strength of personality was came through like his father before him. Although, actually, I just I did I did misspeak earlier because unusually that year, Monaco and Spain were the other way round, weren't they? Yeah, because in that year, yes, in '94, I digressed a bit. But Monaco was the next race in '94, and Vellinger had his big crash. Of course, yeah, and then uh, Damon won the Spanish Grand Prix when Schumacher got stuck in uh, fifth gear. Uh, of course, it's the same pair of races, isn't it? Graham Hill won one, uh, won Spain, and then won Monaco, didn't he? He did, yeah, in '68. Uh, yeah. So just strange these these sort of echoes. I guess I don't want to talk about Damon too much, but almost it was almost even harder for Damon, wasn't it? Because at least Graham Hill was a former world champion and established name. Damon Hill was very much number two. Uh, He'd won three Grand Prix, and he ha- he had. All that pressure on him to to take the fight. Well, so right, to be number two to Alain Prost, and now he was going to be number two to Ayrton Senna. Um, think of somebody else who's been number two to the two all-time greats, uh, and he had to inherit that responsibility, take on that responsibility. And he had a more troubled car to deal with, where whereas Indeed. the Lotus Forty Nine was, I think, a pretty decent package by by early '68. They sort of ironed out a lot of the problems the year before. The Williams, the the, the post Gizmo Williams in '94, was still pretty awkward. I don't think they got that sorted out for quite a few races, did they? You, you probably know better because you've spoken to him about it. But was it the French Grand Prix? Yeah, they, they had the, the new side pods, the, the shorter side pods, and there were a few yeah. other things they did, the height of the front wing and, and things over, over that period that that, uh, that helped um, make that car an easier easier one to drive, although we've uh, digressed. So it's just it's just curious how you get these these echoes, and of course even Damon Hill has some in some ways the same perception problem in that he's seen as a hard worker against the natural talent. But uh, Do you think so? I think he's seen as that way. Yeah, I mean... I, well, it's not necessarily... I don't necessarily agree it's right, but I think that's how, how he's seen. I think that's unfair. I mean, D- Damon's talent was was there right from when he got into for- a Formula Ford car, and and, and uh, if you look at his Formula Three Thousand season, he was pretty impressive in that. Very the quick, car, yeah. the far, car fell apart on him. Um, no, I, I think if, if that is a perception of, of Damon, it's wrong. Well, gr- gr- he's got. Whereas Graham had the problem of Jim Clark being around, Damon's got the problem of Mark Schumacher being around, isn't he? You know, so well, yeah, and, and he, the, he, I mean, some of the races. All right, perhaps you could say that Schumacher, Michael Schumacher, was consistently uh, the, the guy to beat. But Dave, some of Damon's drives. Anyway, we're not meant to be talking about Damon. We're talking about his dad. Look, I'm doing a Damon list. Just, just, yeah, just we'll give, give me some but, time. But, but, <laughs> but it, is, it is curious because you end up with an almost echo of, of similar conversations. Which that's right. I don't know whether that's just coincidence or whether it tells you something about the characters involved. Damon, in some ways, destiny ways. and fate is what it tells you about. Well, there we go. Yeah, we've got this, that's a whole other conversation, isn't it? Well, let's try and get back, get ourselves back onto to Graham Hill now. In the late years of his career, are are an interesting case for for Graham Hill. The Triple Crown, I guess, the completion of the Triple Crown is is, is the the big thing that everyone talks about. Thanks to Fernando Alonso, especially now has brought it back into uh, popularity. Autosport, we tend to regard the Triple Crown as the Monaco Grand Prix, the Indy 500 and the Le Mans 24 hours because it just makes more sense to have like for like three races. Graham did coin it as involving the, the World Championship. But the fact that Graham Hill was able to do this, winning Le Mans in his later years after the big accident at Watkins Glen, and, and the fact that he 
he went specifically after that is, I guess, another another box ticks. He's the only guy to have won won the triple crown. Yeah, uh, although as a measure of his uh, his racing career after the, the, the Watkins Glen accident, I think some of his like winning the international trophy at Silverstone in the Brabham, or, or winning the Formula Two race at Thruxton after it was Ronnie Peterson, I think there he had a big race with. Uh, You're doing a lot of agreeing before the fact with Kevin, which is good. Oh, okay. Uh, unknowingly, because I haven't read all these notes. Um, uh, and uh, I think, all right, it wasn't consistent after the accident because of um, the effect of, the, of his injuries. But uh, he, he, the ability still shone through. And that, again, goes back to showing just how talented a driver he was. I think if I had the assumption, I think Ed probably had the same when I started this, that post Watkins Glen 69, he wasn't the same driver. And there may have been an element of truth in that, certainly as Ian says, in the consistency. But actually, I think that what colours that is his last couple of years tooling around in his own, running his own car, his own team, which were pretty bad. But before that, um, you know, he, he, you know, did a reasonable job at, at Brabham. When he came back after his accident, he was driving Rob Walker Lotuses, which were not likely to be, you know, they were big, it was getting to the point where a privateer in Formula 1 wasn't really going to cut the mustard. So it's probably, it wasn't that, some of his performances weren't that bad compared to before the accident as they look when you take the end of his career being, you know, because the last season, season and a half was, well, I think, was pretty bad. Well, the, the thing that people always talk about is 75 Monaco, isn't it, where he tends to qualify his own car. Didn't qualify, of course, in the days when the Monaco grid was quite small still, but it's the fact that Mr. Monaco failing to qualify it just becomes a, a signal of decline. But, you know, the car wasn't brilliant at that stage, so and he was... Uh, and he wasn't even re- regularly racing at, at no, you know, that and stage. he's not the first driver who's kept going longer than he should uh, because he just loved racing. I, I mean, I, I think there's because he didn't come from a family which had ever been involved in motor racing, and he didn't start racing as Kevin mentioned earlier on until he was twenty four. Um, it, it's kind of thought that, um, or, or he's not given the credit he deserves for um, just being. Somebody who loved driving racing cars. That's what he was. All, that's why he hitched a lift with, from Brands Hatch with Colin Chapman back to the Lotus factory and all the stories about his earliest days. Um, and he, he just couldn't stop driving racing cars so long as there was one there to drive, even if he wasn't delivering the performances that he had been able to do earlier. It's funny, isn't it? We want our racing drivers to be enthusiastic and love doing what they're doing. But if they do it for too long and you start to see them fade, and that's not acceptable either. It's not we've got. They've got to. <laughs> they should be allowed to. Yeah, it should be one or the other, shouldn't it? Really, uh, maybe he should have done something other than F one if he still wanted to race. But I think even he said, you know, I hadn't really thought about giving up um, until quite quite near the end because he enjoyed it so much. And I think probably the arrival of Tony Bryce as well, someone he realised was was really proper, and that actually running a team is much harder than being a racing driver. That, that he now had the situation where he could focus on the team, and 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 Tony would be the the lead driver. So. That was probably the moment where he realised. And we should also say in, into that that love of, of racing, the Watkins Glen accident was incredibly serious and it a lot of drivers probably wouldn't have raced again after that. But the determination at that age to come back, perhaps perhaps you should tell the story of the, the Watkins Glen crash because it's a it's it's a nasty one by any standards. Yeah, well he he went off on on oil, but thought it was a bit strange, jumped out of the car and noticed that the rear tires were chunking. Um got back in but couldn't do his belts up he, he, he literally just couldn't do it so i think he, he came past the pits once to indicate that he was coming in but then it was on the out uh, on that effectively the inlap where a tire went and and he had a horrible um horrible accident car rolled somersaulted sort of half thrown out legs really badly damaged 
Um, and he was told that he wouldn't be back for a year, I think, initially. I think it would take a year to recover you know, op- lots of operations, lots of time in hospital. And obviously being a racing driver, I mean, they, they, they never listen to things like that, do they? So he always did more exercise than he was told because he wanted to build up the muscles quicker and he targeted the 1970 South African Grand Prix. He had to deal with Rob Walker to drive the Lotus. So that was, you know, I'm going to make that. Um, and he and he did just about make it. Um, but even after practice, he said he wasn't sure whether he'd be able to do the race. And he qualified, nine, I think it was 19th. Um, but he kept going and he got quicker and quicker. And he, you know, I guess once the adrenaline's pumping and the enthusiasm's there, it kind of fades away. And he ended up getting a point. And I think it was probably the most... It was probably the point that he most highly regarded in his entire career. Yeah, which doesn't talk of a driver who's just sort of there to have a good time. That's that takes incredible determination. Absolutely. I mean, I hope that bears out as another example of uh, of, of how committed to racing, driving racing cars he was. C- can I just go back a few years? Because I just thought of another example of, of the status of Graham Hill um, in the 1960s. Um, I was at that Formula 2 race that Jochen Rent won at Crystal Palace. Uh, and yes, Jochen Rint won it, and that's what it's remembered for. But the main op- opposition that day came from Graham Hill in the John Coombs Cooper, not in a, not a Lotus or Brabham, that was in a John Coombs Cooper, which wasn't the car to have. Uh, and yet uh, Graham Hill was, because Jochen Rint hadn't really been heard of at that stage, he was a privateer Brabham. Um, Graham Hill was the guy to beat. And, that, and, and Jim Clark was in the race and other good drivers in the race, but it was uh, against... Um, some very good drivers. Jochen Rint won, but Graham Hill was the, the, the main opposition. Well, when I was doing the the, sh- the short list, which is not what it should be called, the long list for the uh, top 10 drives, there were several F2 races in there. And if you think the, the kings of F2, it was Jochen Rint and then it was Ronnie Peterson. And Graham had incredible dices with both of them, which people tend to forget now. I mean, I did pick one of them for the for the top 10, but there were others, as, as Ian says. Again, there were a couple against against Jochen and, and, and a couple against Ronnie. Well, talking of, the, of his greatest drives, let's have a look through that, Kev. That's run in Autosport Magazine and uh, Autosport.com in the plus subscriber area. You've gone for a less well-known race in, in 10. There's perhaps not one that springs to mind, but 1964, uh, Green 12 Hours, sports car race. Yeah, this is one that wasn't on my radar at all. Um but one of the first things I, I do when I'm doing this is to try and read the autobiographies, if one exists, of the given drivers. And he spends a, quite a long time talking about this race. Um, and it's for two main reasons. I think it starts it starts in the night. And he says how much of a challenge it is going from the bright lights of the pits and in, out into the into the fields <laughs> in the darkness. With And let's face it, lights in those days would have been quite a lot poorer than they are now on, on a modern, modern racing car. Um, and he also had an incredible high-speed fight for for a lot of the race with John Surtees in a in a similar Ferrari, but also this this was at the start of the Ford GT onslaught. Um, so there were I think three Fords there, one of which was was up at the front, Richard Ginther, and they had a proper almost Formula Ford style slipstreaming fight for um, I think for the first hour, and then after the Ford dropped out, uh, the Ferrari fight went all the way to the end. Um, and it's one that he he picked out as being particularly memorable, and um, the way he described it, I thought I'd, you know it had to be in there. Really, it had to get mentioned. But I guess one of the reasons he regarded it as memorable uh, is because it was wheel to wheel racing, which is what he enjoyed. And, and, and you're absolutely right to describe uh, that race, uh, the, the Reims 12-hour race, Rounds 12-hour race, started at midnight with a Le Mans start, and, and the only illuminated area was the pit straight. 
or the past the pits. Then you plunged into darkness through the Dunlop curve uh, and through the French countryside in total darkness. And there you are dicing wheel to wheel with some other very good drivers. So it, it was but, uh, just another point about the, that. That's a sports car race. Um, he was so good in sports cars. I mean, in, in the Marinello Concessionaires Ferrari, yes, he had in that race, Joe Bonnier, who was his co-driver. Well, not, nobody's going to claim that Joe Bonnier was anything like as good as Graham Hill. Um, so that was an, a, 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 that and other results. He won the Taurus Trophy in the 250 GTO Ferrari um, because he was the best driver. Uh, there were quite a lot of Ferraris in that race. Yeah, he with the TT thing, um, he... he... There's a little just short comment that he makes about 62 TT because he won 63 and 64. Quite irritated that um, uh, I think he was chasing he was chasing his island and ended up winning. And there was an incident ahead of them, and in his cut the track to avoid it, and basically got three seconds. And I think it was that Graham felt that that was the that was the break that Innes needed. And now you'd probably get a, a five second penalty or something like that. Oh, that that's a topic. For, we could go on for a long time about that. Yeah, but you're quite right. Uh, I mean, again, I was at the 62 TT and, and Innes Island won it only just and Graham Hill was the favourite to win it. Um, but whether it was because of what Innes did, I don't know. But um, in 64, he won because he had the best car. Um, the Lotus 30 fell apart on Jim Clark. Surprise, surprise. And um, so Graham had the Ferrari that, yeah, the, the, the 63 race was, the, was the, the, the result that was really the top one. Well, number nine, Kev, is a race we've only alluded to in passing, precisely for the, this reason that we get into it here, the 1966 Indy 500, Hill's first Indy 500 outing. Uh, this one was this one almost didn't make the list, and I thought it has to be in there, really, because the whole Triple Crown story and winning Indy 500 as a rookie is probably worthy of inclusion, however it happens. But, I mean, he himself admitted it was incredibly lucky because, um, I mean, he missed some of practice um, because of various backwards and forwards, um, and there was a massive multi-car accident. Uh, of which he was one of the last cars to escape it. So there was, the grid was substantially diminished. And then Mario Andretti led and retired and Lloyd Ruby disappeared down the road and then he retired. And then Jackie Stewart, who was his Lola teammate and fellow rookie, he was going to win. And about nine or ten laps from home, his, his engine broke. Um, and uh, Clark had one of his stranger days where he managed to have two spins at the Indy 500. I think they said he was the first person to spin twice Indy 500 and not hit anything. Um, uh, and, and 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 Graham won. So he described it as a fortunate win. But I think you know you've yeah he, he, as he said he drank the milk didn't he? That's what he said. Um, but I, I'm very much one of those who having read such evidence as there is, I wasn't there. Um, I think Jim Clark won that race. This is the great time, the great lap charting debate, isn't it? That's right, uh, and that's what brought out Graham Hill's comment about I got, to, I, I drunk the milk, so you're too late, mate. But um, I, I, I don't, I, I can understand why you put it in the top ten because winning Indianapolis at your first attempt is quite an achievement. But either Jackie Stewart, but that was a mechanical problem, so Jackie would have won the race. Um, Jim Clark should have won, or did win the race. I mean, Indianapolis aficionados, people who know more about these things than I, seem to to, to agree that that it was the Lotus lap chart error rather than a... a I mean, you could say they've got vested interest uh, in, in re, saying Read that, David but, Tremaine's uh, book, because he goes into it in great length. And okay. he, he's assessed all He the is evidence. a Clark fan, of course. So? <laughs> also a very, very good journalist. That's true, yes, yeah, that's true. I, I, yeah, that, that, I, I certainly think that's wouldn't argue absolutely that. right, Ed. Um, uh, uh, no, it, he's gone into it in great length, and, well, he certainly convinces me, even if it wasn't convinced already, that, that Jim Clark won that race. This is a whole extra podcast, isn't it, go through? We can do the full legal case, which, uh, of course, you'd be particularly good at. So, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, th- I think 
I think Kev's point about it basically being regard almost regardless of the circumstances, it's it, it's an achievement, and I can I can see why it's why it's in there. Other bit of the triple crown up next in eighth place, uh, Le Mans seventy two in the Matra. Yeah, I put this ahead because um, actually the triple crown thing is interesting because obviously Fernando Alonso has been you know stated that he's going after it, and there was quite a lot of criticism for, about him winning this year for Toyota well, who did he have to beat because Toyota were going to dominate but I'm fact, pretty sure he said it was one of the hardest Le Mans ever well that's probably too far <laughs> the other way we know that some of the Fernando sound bites are pretty you're pretty good aren't they but but you know Graham had the car okay there were four of them one of them blew up on lap two obviously the one that Chris Amon was in um so and I think one of them was older so there's basically one other car to beat for most of the race which is the same as what what Alonso had and I think in both instances, they took the opportunity that, that came along. Graham realised very early, he was very impressed with the car and the preparation. It, he said it was much better than any other car and team that he'd been involved with at Le Mans up to that point. Um, Henri Pescarello, who's his co-driver, was, didn't really want this old washed-up XF1 driver in the car. But he realised that Graham had saw the opportunity. And, you know, this is what the great drivers do. They see the, the opportunity and they rise to it. And they were supposed to be running to... There's actually conflicting evidence as to quite how uh, pre-arranged the pace of the cars was, but one thing that they couldn't do was dictate the pace during the wet. So whenever it rained, Graham pushed. I think he was key to one of the tyre changes, timing of the tyre changes, um, and he, you know, he, he'd put that car in a, in a strong position as it was. The other car had a problem anyway, and they ended up winning by 10 laps or something. It was, it was quite a comfortable win in the end. But he definitely, that wasn't just a, a rock-up cruise around and, and winning the best car. You know, he put his you know, he put his mark on that race. Absolutely. His, his vast experience by that stage, 1972, obviously helped him. Uh, and, and quite a lot of drivers didn't like Le Mans, as we know, Grand Prix drivers. Um, but Graham's approach always seemed to be totally professional towards the race, if whatever the phrase totally professional means. And that's what a job that he delivered. But it's not a classic Le Mans race. It's not one of the ones you remember as, a, as a, one of the all-time great Le Mans 24-hour races because he won in the end very easily. He had a very good co-driver. The same, that's the same as 2018. In 20 or 30 years' time, we won't be picking out the 2018 Le Mans as one of the greatest Le Mans, but we will probably still be talking about it. If, if Fernando goes and wins an Indy 500, it will become significant because of its place in that triple crown story and this is the same really and i guess it's again reflective of an ability even in his advanced years racing wise to, to deliver because obviously pescarolo who was showing him wasn't delighted because he felt it was uh, he was over the hill as it as it were but uh did a good job um number seven we've we've talked about this a little bit the spanish grand prix victory in 1968 yeah n- n- nothing further to add really i think there were three leaders before hill again chris Amon was out front in the ferrari and it broke um but yeah, sorry, Ian looks. Well, like I was gonna, just going to say that uh, uh, I like the story that Brian Redmond tells because it was Brian finished third uh, in that race in the Cooper BRM, uh, 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 one of the greatest results ever achieved by a Cooper BRM. One of the greatest underrated racing drivers of all time as well. Another podcast. well, that's another yeah. Let's start like Brian Redmond. We talking about Graham Hill, but I could yeah. Um, but Graham uh, Brian tells the story about when they climbed onto the vehicle, the victory vehicle that took the round at the end of the race. Um, Graham saw Brian. He said. Who the uh, hell are you? Uh, <laughs> I've just finished third, Graham. Oh, have you? Oh, well, how have you done that? I mean, it, it, I think there were about five finishes, weren't there? It was a very small number of finishes in the race. It was a small number of starters yes, as well. I right. think it was only yes. about 13 starters. So 13. As a, again, if you were doing the great Grand Prix, it wouldn't figure very high at all. But I think it's all about the context of, of, of such a short amount of time after after Clark's death and the fact that you know Chapman was away doing some soul searching somewhere well strange things happened in spain of course many years later somebody called maldonado won a grand prix in spain 
most random Grand Prix wins in history. And then the garage. <laughs> I hope you're writing all these yeah. down, Ed. These are podcasts <laughs> the next couple of years. Exactly. Yeah. Well, the Maldonado one is, a, is, a, is an interesting one. Maldonado is a driver on his. We've, we've turned into Master Maldonado. This is amazing. It was very hard to get him in the zone, but when he was there, he he could be could be very very quick. Um, let's let's get back on course. Um, your sixth, uh, number six on the list is a 68 Mexican GP, the other defining race of that year where you get into the championship. Season finale, showdown with uh, Jackie Stewart. And actually, Denny Hole mathematically had a chance as well, but he was never really in it across the course of the race. Bet you're disappointed about that. Oh, it's another it's another podcast. <laughs> How good was Denny Hull? Um And I think, you know, Stewart, Stewart in a way, you you could make an argument for being the top driver of that season. You know, he missed a couple of races up with injury. Matra was the coming force, you know, with, with Ken Tyrrell. Um, but even at the end of the season, with all that, um, you know, Graham went um, wheel to wheel with him. Having had some aerodynamic problems in practice, they they were still playing around with rear wings and movable rear wings, which quite often broke. And I think Graham was pretty used to Lotus things breaking as well, but carried on plugging away. Um, they w- went for one particular setup and went with it, and it, it broke on the first lap. There were two two small bits of what he described, I think, as elastic or nylon that made the wing work. One of them broke, and he said, "I look, I turned the mirror." to check the other one because if that had gone then we were in trouble because it would mean it would either be full on or full off and he said that worked for the entire race so he knew he had a problem basically from the start went wheel to wheel with Stuart Joe Siffert probably having one of his greatest races came through past them both and Graham's this is absolutely fine I can you know Siffert winning is fine I can stay in behind him in the end Siffert broke and, and Stuart eventually fell back with a car problem so he needed it. the result there was some luck there because of the reliability problems of others but he'd been right up at the sharp end doing what he needed to do to win the championship but talking of luck yeah uh, all you say is absolutely correct but um go back to 1964 when graham was in with a real chance of winning the world championship that year and got punted out by bandini uh and never recovered from that and when clark had the problem on the last lap at mexico in 64 30s won graham but for bad luck could well have been in there to win the championship that year. 64 is a remarkable F1 season. We, Ed and I, we look at super times a lot. And there's four different manufacturers or constructors that covered by about 0.7% which is of course the super times an attempt to kind of quantify the average performance of a car over a season. So yes, but it's speed wise. Um, and as well as having a, a total showdown, we've got Clark, Surtees uh, and Hill in it. You've also had Dan Gurney who should have been because of the races that he lost during the season, um, some 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 other people have done some incredible maths on this, uh, <laughs> which we'll perhaps come back to another time. Um, so any one of them would probably make a case that they could have been world world champion there. But but the point is is which we're trying to make is obviously Graham was he didn't fold under the pressure of a of a title decider at, at any time when he was in them. Interesting phrase that fold under the pressure. I can't remember. That he ever folded under pressure? Yes, sometimes he did in his later days raise his performance to uh, the same level as, say, Jim Clark or or Jackie Stewart later on. But I I can't ever remember him quote folding under pressure. He's not done a Jack Brabham at Monaco that stands out. Or that's very like that, that's yeah. a very good point actually. I, all the races I've looked at for this, I don't I can't think of a single one where he's thrown it off under under pressure, or actually just thrown it off. And this is a testament to his powers of concentration. As well as his ability, that, that, that's what we talked about in the context of Monaco earlier. That's a, a very, very good point. Uh, number five in your list. It's a non-championship race, and often the non-championship races sort of fall through the cracks of history. Unfortunately, but the '62 BRDC International Trophy at Silverstone, which it, it's a race that definitely shouldn't be forgotten. 
Um, were you there, Ian? Yes. Do no, we, no, I, you... was, I watched on TV. Sorry. I okay. Do you TV. want to? Do you want to go first then, and then <laughs> as you had first well, experience? This is the race that I mentioned earlier on. We were talking about uh, Colin Chapman's relationship with with uh, Jim Clark, and this is the race after which uh, Jim Clark received a severe rebuke in front of the team. Uh, from and, Colin and some standing spectators there, apparently as well. Okay, right. So in front of a crowd, um, because really that was a race that I would say that Jim Clark lost, uh, rather than yeah Graham Hill won it because he was able to um, catch Jim Clark up over the last few laps and, and a, f- a real Silverstone-type finish round the outside coming through Westworld. Virtually invented it, didn't it? <laughs> Nearly. It might well have done. I mean, Peter Scott Russell would have been doing the commentary in those days, the second commentary, and he was the one who came up with the, the phrase Silverstone-type finish. And it absolutely was a Silverstone-type finish round the outside through the old woodcut, pre-Chicane woodcut, on a wet track. The, well, there's the famous picture of... of um, in fact, both of them, are, I think, got opposite lock-on as they come across the line. And there's the, two of the top drivers in the world. Fantastic race. Great performance. Great testament to uh, Graham Hill. And, of course, he repeated that, really, in 1965, in the British Grand Prix in 1965, when Jim Clark had his engine problems and was cruising through corners. And Graham was catching him and catching him. And at the flag, it was a very small gap in 65, I think, between the two of them. So those are the sort of drives that, that Graham could turn on. And, and, yeah, so he... Keep fighting... I think that's one of them, but also his stamina and, as you say, concentration. Concentration, yes. 65, I think he set the new lap record on the last lap while he was chasing Clark. Now, now um, this, this is possibly unfair and it'll upset Jim Clark fans, and I'm a big Jim Clark fan, but, of course, twice, and I was at both of these races, Jim Clark cracked under pressure. At the Race of Champions in 1965, he went off at bottom bend. Gurney. Or, um, under pressure from Dan Gurney. Um, and the entry 200 in 1964, um, he crashed... Um, coming through Melling Crossing. Now, that's always blamed on poor old André Pilette for getting in the way as a back marker, but I mean, he had Brabham right behind him, and Jim Clark went for a move that didn't work and crashed heavily. Yeah, and I can't think of any examples of Graham. Probably should exactly. just should just say for those that don't know, which would be a high number, I would imagine, who hadn't seen the International Trophy on television, is that Clark was streaked off into a big lead in the damp, who was, I think, 25 seconds ahead at one stage, and the ground started to catch him up, and there was a little bit of confusion with Lotus pit boards. It wouldn't happen now, because you just get on the radio and go, the gap's down to this, pull your finger out. Um, and Graham came charging up to him, and, and Clark saw him at the last minute, went to the inside, so Graham just held it around the outside. Yeah, I mean, I can't remember line. what the gap was on the as they started the last lap. I think lap. it was about... Five, two, no, it was six seconds with two laps two to go, laps, yeah, that's right. and then yes. a couple of seconds, yeah. I think, on the last yeah. lap. And being a, a bit... A, a big Jim Clark fan. Um, I, was watch- I remember watching it on TV at school uh, and uh, huge disappointment uh, on my part that Graham Hill had won that race. And we had the same in 64 when Jackie Stewart just beat Jack Brabham in the same way. For number four on your list, heading to F2. So this is um, this is what I sort of picked out in the end as his best post uh, United States Grand Prix crash race. Um, so it's Thruxton Formula Two, Jochenmint Trophy, um, in the in the Brabham up against Ronnie Peterson, who was the F two guy or about to be the F two guy, um, and they both they both starred in their respective heats. Although Ronnie actually didn't win his because he had a, a problem um, in those days when the junior categories had heats before a final. Um, and then Pescarolo briefly leads the race, and then he retires, and then it becomes a Hill Peterson fight. And again, this is an example of Hill main you know not making a mistake under pressure Ronnie's pressuring him the whole time Peterson eventually gets past him some debate in contemporary reports as to whether it's the last or penultimate lap but 
towards the end gets him and then gets held up in traffic Graham goes through the gap and holds on to win um, so to just to go wheel to wheel with him remember he was in his 40s by then up against the young up and coming you know the guy everyone th- I mean actually 71 Ronnie's already having one you know he's going to finish second in the Formula 1 World Championship in his second full season or first full season I think um, so he's a you know he's a coming star. So to be able to do that as effectively an old man was was pretty impressive. Uh, all that you say is absolutely correct. But of course, and a lot of people um, listen to this will know Thruxton and know that Thruxton is a totally different circuit from Monaco. So, yeah, high speed. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and so Graham Hill was able to shine. Whether it was and that is where you describe that race absolutely right. Uh, and uh, so he he can win a Formula Two race wheel to wheel with Ronnie Peterson. Um, who was absolutely the coming coming man, um, and he could win five times at Monaco. Totally different sort of circuit. Number three on your list, the nineteen sixty British Grand Prix. So this is what made why it made me happy earlier on. So that was the the race he stalled at the line, got um, on the line, got away last, fought his way through. Um, Clark actually mentions it in his autobiography as his great Graham whistling past him on one of what he thought it Clark thought it was one of Graham's best drives. Um, and um, what a, an amazing Grand Prix win that would have been catch Jack Bram. Jack Bram held on to him and actually a bit of credit for Bram to then hold on to Hill in the late stages because it's then contributes to Hill taking the chance in traffic and getting caught out um, but of course it, that's just the beginning of his bad luck in the British Grand Prix in. <laughs> oh, well, that, that's right but uh, the nineteen sixty eight, I suppose answers the question I posed earlier about can you remember Graham Hill ever going off under pressure well actually that one but you can partly blame it on the car um, because it was the lousy BRM brakes again that caught him out uh, as the race came towards its last, was it 10 laps on the end? It was very close to the end anyway that he went off. Uh, number two on your list, another race we have alluded to, the 62 German Grand Prix, of course. Had the problem in practice when Carl got on both thoughts onboard camera fell off and, uh, and and caused a crash. Every time we talk about this, I have to use the line, one of the most underrated Grand Prix of all time, this one. I don't know why it doesn't get more coverage, but I have done my best over the last couple of years to mention it where possible. Um, so this is the race where like, I actually put down as Clark's greatest driver because he got to switch the fuel pumps on uh, at the start and charged back through uh, to fourth and got sort of within range-ish of the leading three before he had a moment and decided to back it off. Let's play the autosport game. of you. you these days, you give drivers a rating <coughs> marks out of 10. Take all top four finishers. How how would you mark them then for that race? Ooh. I'm not going to help you on this. I have, you, to, write, I have to rate the drivers every, every yeah, race. Yeah, well, that's why I was looking at yeah, you. So, well, um, come on, Ed. Well, I think, Hill, you would have to give a 10. Absolutely, okay. definitely a 10. Right. Um, you can't give Clark 10. Yeah, I, he, I, I could it, see where you. I could immediately see where you were going with that one. I think that it, I, for both cases, I weighted them a, a bit, and I was trying to factor this in: is what the drivers themselves think of those races. Um, and uh, Graham picked out sixty-two German Grand Prix and sixty-five Monaco Grand Prix. The two times he really felt that they were his best yeah. personal. Performance. Okay, so he gets ten, and, and Clark did the same with the sixty-two German Grand Prix himself. You're playing as for well. time here, Kevin. So, so how many how many marks out of ten would you give? Clark for that race, I, I I would probably give it a nine on, on that basis. But I mean, Ed, obviously, you, now I'm going to have to find myself arguing with myself well, you've in got, the past. Well, you've got you've got an initial, you've got an error at the start, a, yeah, not a driver exactly. error, but a operational he, error, and then having a little moment while could it could he have got involved in it? So yeah, you, you may you maybe start looking a little bit lower than nine. And what about Dan Gurney and, and John Surtees then? 
Now, Gurney had a fire extinguisher or something come loose in the car and he dropped back and then caught up again. So that must be worth a point. Um, for so him I to think that's, yeah. So I think mobile that, fire extinguisher. I mean, that when you're getting down to that level, you're saying you, you've got to factor in what you think the relative strengths of the cars were as well, of course. Yes. Um, and I know John, because I spoke to, spoke to Surtees about this race, um, and he reckoned he'd worked out a way of beating Hill, and then there was traffic on the last lap just where he didn't need it. Um, and he, and he, and he, That's probably he a fair it, comment which, which by him, may, not that we were there, but um, I, as long as Surtees is always fair about his Yeah, I was going to say, I would, I, would, I would trust that as being, mm. being fair. So, I mean, I think, are you, are you nines or are you tens? Did they maximise what they had? On the basis that Gurney took pole and finished third, you'd probably have to give him a nine rather than a ten, wouldn't you? I'd say eight. Oh, eight. Mm. Yeah, well, he was on pole, and he had conditions where the underperformance of a Porsche would probably be negated to some extent because it was in the wet. Yeah, but it's the, it's the Nordschleifer as well. Yeah, it's the Nordschleifer. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, they're all worth yeah. a lot of points, but <laughs> that, that's why I just thought it was interesting to make the comparison between all of them. Give Graham Hill 10, no argument. Yeah. And and Surtees, nine. Um, well, to me, yeah, I'd say with nine. If, if he figured out a way to, to beat Hill. But, you know, you, yeah. you can always run into traffic, can't this you? Is so where that's cutting it too fine. Now we'd have the advantage of TV and onboards and all the rest of it, so you could check it all out. I yeah. think there's another yeah. podcast in here um, rating driver Grand Prix results from years gone by. Well, yeah, perhaps it's a challenge for, challenge for Ed. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's also so good because it adds to your workload. Well, more of the facts will be in as well, which will make it a little bit, uh, a little bit easier. <laughs> I must admit, rating drivers, out, it's always very... I, I like looking into their race, but it's really difficult. There's so many factors. Well, you yeah, include you qualifying can... as well, don't you? Across, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, a weekend rating. Weekend yeah. rather yeah. than a race rating, I mean, which the, is... The overall, the overall, the, the strongest thing is you try and quantify what the machinery is capable of, and you say, "Well, is this a car that could have won the Grand Prix?" And if the answer is yes, then you start looking. Well, did it win? Why didn't it win? And then, it's like, if you think, "Well, the best, the result this this car could have achieved was a seventh, and if you're seventh in qualifying and seventh in the in the race, then actually that's that's potentially kind of kind of up there." So it's all about the car potential, isn't it? Really, that's the that's the the kind of framework you have to you have to build the evaluation around. Yes, nowadays I would say it's less the case. Yes, I've just made the point about the Porsche perhaps not being uh, as good as the Climax engine or the BRM engine cars um, back in '62. But I would say that in those days, machinery mattered less than it does now. As that's a percentage, prob- that's probably that's, fair. yeah. I think that's, that's probably uh, probably truth in that. The only other thing I wanted to mention about the '62 German Grand Prix was we sort of hinted at it earlier with the the camera coming on. It was a big crash he had. I mean, he was doing 140, 150 when he came around the corner and saw this what he describes a big black object in the middle of the road because he didn't know what it was at the time. He managed to line up so he went over it rather than it hitting a wheel because that would have been obviously really horrendous. Uh, but he still had a massive crash and the car was was written off. I think a lot of people. That was a very early effort on an onboard camera, which is clearly, clearly the technology. Camera, yeah. The technology wasn't ready yet. It was De Beaufort's um, Porsche, wasn't it? It was, yeah. Uh, and so he had to get into the get into the spare car. And he makes the point of you know, with everything that happened to me in that weekend, you could you know, uh, perhaps uh, someone could have been put 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 off. And he said the fact that I wasn't and was then able to win a race in such ghastly conditions and under pressure. I think it's. I very nearly put it number one. The reason I didn't put it number one is because partly I think to have. 
I quite like the idea of having a Monaco race as number one in the hill list. But we also should say 65 Monaco, as we discussed earlier, 65, is yeah, number one. Yeah. Um, and also because I've done the 62 German Grand Prix as a number one already somewhere, so I wanted to do something different, which is a bit of artistic license, which I can see Ian frowning at me. Already. Well, no, I was just wondering whether you could have an equal first, or is that not allowed? Oh, that's that. I, I've done that once before, and I, it's taken me many years to, to hear the last of it. it it's a bit it's, of a cop-out, unless, unless there's a really, really strong reason yeah, for it. Yeah, it's very much frowned upon, you see, equal number. Well, I'm saying that for different reasons, the equal, they're both um, the best examples of Graham Hill at his best. And, and it's very, as I say, for different reasons. And so you can't really split them. Um, and so it would only be fair to have them as joint number one. Well, it's all right. I mean, when it comes down to any of these things, the top sends, it's always a, you know, that it's arbitrary in a way. It's very subjective, but it's it's always interesting to, to look at the drivers this way because the, the detail of the races uh, brings out a lot more of the understanding of, of, of the drivers in question so what's our conclusion then I mean the, the proposition was is the F1's underrated double champion and I think well, Ian several times you've you've sort of shot down the uh well that you've you've said that if he is underrated it, it is it is wrong because he had these he had these strengths yes he, he absolutely I, I do think he is not given never was given um I suppose at the time when reports on individual races that we've been talking about were written, they were giving him credit at the time. So the 1960 British Grand Prix, for example, the 1962 German Grand Prix. But then, of course, the quality of the reports, one might say, in autosport back in 62 wasn't quite at the Grand Prix level what you get today, uh, sparing blushes in the room. Um, uh, so, so that you didn't get the detail of until you got Dennis Jenkins in, in motorsport. That's when you really got the... Um, and, and Jenks was a huge fan of Jim Clark. Um, but he, he, which isn't to say he, he didn't rate Graham Hill, but he always seemed to, a bit like Colin Chapman, put Clark number one. And, and Motorsport Reports, uh, the magazine Motorsport Reports by Jenks, tended to be very influential in perception of what races you didn't go to. Uh, and I think, uh, just to back up what you're saying, I also think that he does suffer from that last couple of seasons tailing off, which you shouldn't really judge him. I think other people could judge him on that. I think that perception is part of the reason he gets underrated. You know, I think, well, look at the other way. I think if you get cut down in your prime in the way that Clark, Gilles Villeneuve and Senna did, I think that tends, you, 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 they were remembered at their peak. We never got to see them go over the other side of the of the cliff or another you know, young upstart come and challenge and maybe take their throne. Whereas, you know, there is no way that you would say that Graham Hill was the best driver in the world by the end of his career. Um, so that I think that does colour it. And it I understand what underrated. you're saying, but having lived through the whole period, I, I, I'm not influenced by those last two years. That just to me is a, an inevitable decline following bad accidents on the part of Graham. I'm sure you're not, Ian, but it I think that no, looking back... Yeah, and that's the problem with history, isn't it? If you're looking <laughs> back at something... I, 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 Amazingly, I didn't see the Mercedes not a unions in the 1930s. You'd be surprised to be told. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I, I can't really rate except by what I read, Nuvolari and Caracciola and Herman Lang and so on. Um, you, you can come to conclusions on the basis of what you do read about it. But I, I think that if looking at Graham Hill's career on the basis of those last two years is absolutely unfair, totally unfair. I'm not saying you're doing it. But- it would be a bit like judging Nuvolari by his his final outings although he did have one very famous late one but Nuvolari or or Marcus Schumacher with his second career slightly different but but it's a a similar kind of kind of argument isn't it that if you yeah if you are cut down in your prime or you retire suddenly you never you never do have that have that decline I think I think it's right to judge drivers by their peak and Hill certainly had a a lengthy a lengthy peak you would say basically throughout most of the 60s he was unquestionably a a a top driver Uh, but yeah I mean the 
the underrated thing. It's uh, the, the interesting thing is whenever you have these debates about the relative greatness of drivers, the outcome doesn't really matter. It's all about just trying to understand them more. Absolutely, and, and that's what I think. Absolutely hopefully, right, we've achieved yes. today. Yes, hopefully. So, your your what's your final conclusion, Kev? Are you uh, are you putting Graham Hill up there as better than Jim Clark, or are you sort of? You're, I mean, he's he's he kind of a certainly if you're ranking it, he, he's. Hill's unquestionably a top 20 yeah I was going to say Clark's a definite top 10 and Hill's a top 20 he's probably that's a very rough shorthand and I think Ian already going through his mind all the different names and where he was where's, where's Pastor Maldonado that's but, the question yeah. <laughs> uh, is he even in the top 100 um, <laughs> might, might struggle although there's, there's not I mean, there's not been many more than that world championship race winners so but I mean, I know a very controversial character is Gilles Villeneuve. You mentioned him. That's why I'm t- mentioning him now. You mentioned him just now. Uh, and for me, there's a huge gulf between... I know Gilles Villeneuve was a very exciting driver. There's a lot of people excited during his relatively short career uh, in Formula 1, sadly. But um, to me, Graham Hill is way above Gilles Villeneuve. Nice. That's interesting. I mean, just one last thing. I was going to say, one, if you're trying to be objective about it, which we do try to be, um, then I think... Comparing cross era, as we know, is difficult. So you sort of go across the the drives of their given era. So you go Fangio, Moss, Clark, Stewart, bit of a gap, was it louder, question mark, Prost, Senna, Schumacher, and then to the current era where we've had debates about this as well. Um, and so that gives you your top seven or eight, and then you slot you slot the best of the best eras underneath that. And that's it's maybe the, it's the bar Graham raising, the bar raising added, drivers probably yeah. creates that little elite um, group and maybe, maybe Hill's at the top of the sort of second group rather than with those ones who redefined what it is to be a racing driver. You look sceptical, Ian. <laughs> yeah, I, I still think, in say making that comment, that you've underrated, still underrated Graham Hill. Um, I, can't, I can't avoid it. It's just it's the way it is, isn't it? Oh, yeah, I mean, this is part of the fun of these sort of conversations, isn't it, to, to, to debate. Um, and I'm, I suppose, influenced by what, what I believe he did, not just in Formula 1, but in, when we've talked about the Reims race. Um, Le Mans less so, that was well a well-driven right car at the right time. But some of the other races I saw him in, in, in the Ferrari GTO, for example, or any of the, the Marinello concessionaires Ferraris, uh, or in the, uh, early in that, in the Lotus 15, you know, in 58, when he was still a Lotus driver. Uh, for the first time, I mean, he, he was the guy to beat. Well, I think without a shadow of a doubt, anyone who doesn't think Graham Hill was a great driver is is very much wrong. And that Absolutely. W- what he achieved, not just in Formula One, but winning the Triple Crown, the only driver to do it. Fernando Alonso could spend the next 20 years trying to win Indy and uh, and never managed to uh, never managed to do it. So uh, that, that says a lot about uh, what Graham Hill brought to motorsport. Well, we've we've been on a long journey through this podcast, all all sorts of uh, digressions about Damon Hill and Maldonado and various things. But it's yeah, it's been a fascinating conversation. So thanks very much to Kevin and to Ian for their insights. And uh, I think our conclusion is probably Graham Hill uh, is F one's underrated double champion, in particularly by me, in particular by me. Thanks, Ed. <laughs> Thanks very much. Well, head to autosport.com for all the latest news on Formula One, the whole world of motorsport, our plus subscriber area for all sorts of in-depth features. You'll be able to find uh, Kevin Turner's in-depth top 10 Graham Hill drives in that. Check out sister titles, F1 Racing Magazine, out monthly, and also motorsport.com. If you fancy a flutter, download the Pit Stop betting app. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast.
Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. Redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino style games to choose from, you too could win life changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to chumbacasino.com and give them a world. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.